Hello, and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak of Texas A&M University, where I'm an economics professor and the director of the Justice Tech Lab. My guest this week is Mika Sviacci. Mika is an assistant professor of economics at Princeton University. Mika, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jen, for having me. This is actually an amazing opportunity to talk about research on crime. Well, I'm very happy to have you here. Today, we're going to talk about your work on the economic effects of criminal gangs in El Salvador. So could you kick things off for us by telling us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic? Yes, sure. So most of my research studies actually how criminal organizations such as gangs and drug trafficking groups in developing countries, in particular, how these criminal organizations affect household behaviors such as human capital investments, and also how they affect state presence in the areas they control. I also work with governments to design and evaluate public policies affecting drug trafficking and gang control areas. And for this, I make use of large administrative data sets. So today I will be mainly talking about this uh, research related to organized crime, which is joint work with Nikita Melikov at Princeton University and Carlos Padilla from Berkeley University. So how I became interested in these topics is actually because in recent decades, criminal organizations have become a major threat for international security and for global economic development. And although everything has been good, we know that general crime has declined a lot in recent decades, it has increased a lot in urban centers in the developing world. In particular, what we have seen is that it has increased a lot in Latin America, which contains 43 of the 50 most murdered cities in the world. So the first question I became interested is, what has been causing all this violence? And well, much of this violence, I found it has been attributed to criminal organizations such as drug cartels and gangs. And here, something important is that when I'm talking about gangs, I do not mean small street gangs, but actually large, powerful organizations that have complete control of certain neighborhoods and sometimes even cities in developing countries. In the particular case of El Salvador, which I'm going to talk today, there is anecdotal evidence that suggests that up to 50% of the population live in territories controlled by gangs. And given this setting, this is why I, may, I became interested in this topic. Yeah, the, the situation in El Salvador, as I was reading this paper, just was fascinating. And it's just amazing how little I knew about the, this context. So so give us a little bit more background on, on what's happening in El Salvador. Uh, what are the major gangs that are there? And where are they most influential? Yes. So the main gangs in El Salvador are actually the ones that appear today in the newspaper a lot, which are the MS-13 and Neighborhood 18. And it is important to note that actually both of these gangs were formed in the 1980s in Los Angeles by young immigrants from Central America that came to the U.S. fleeing civil war in their countries of origin. And back in L.A., these Salvadorians were living in very tough neighborhoods where actually other gangs already exist. And what the story says is that for self-defense reasons, some of these Salvadorians decided to create this gang, which is MS-13 today, and some others joined the neighborhood 18, which actually the main business of these gangs was extorting and drug selling in the streets of LA. And then there was a change in deportation policy in the US, which sent these criminal deportees back to their countries of origin, in this case, back to El Salvador. So today, both of these gangs, which are the MS-13 and Neighborhood 18, together in El Salvador, they have approximately 70,000 members, and it's estimated that nearly half a million people, which are relatives, business partners, politicians, and police, are actually financially dependent on them. And if you think about it, these are very large numbers, given that the population of El Salvador is only 6 million. So this is a lot. 
we're talking about half a million. And moreover, these gangs do not only have presence in El Salvador, but also in other countries such as Honduras, Guatemala, Mexico, Italy, and also the US. In general, in terms of how uh, this gang works, these gangs are powerful and mainly they use their power to extract money from the local population, often via extortion and drug selling, the same things that they were doing in LA back in the 1980s. That's what they do now in Central America. And something very important for this study is that in order to make sure that individuals do not migrate out from these gang control areas and to avoid extortion, these gangs are also known to restrict the mobility of individuals living under the territory. And finally, another important fact is that these are the gangs that are potentially responsible for the recent increase in Central American refugees into the United States today. Yeah. And so, as you mentioned, um, the interaction between the U.S. and El Salvador does go back to this previous U.S. policy that you're going to make use of here um, that led to an increase in gang activity in El Salvador. So walk us through that policy change. What happened? What was the policy change? And how did it affect gang activity there? Yes. So in this paper, basically what we did was to take advantage of the natural experiment that took place in El Salvador. So basically, in the early 1990s, El Salvador did not have any powerful gangs. However, in 1996, the United States, they changed this immigration policy, making basically easier to deport individuals with some criminal records to their home country. And as a result, in 1997, many Salvadorian migrants who were members of gangs in the United States were deported back to El Salvador, where they reestablished those gangs immediately. Importantly, when they went back to El Salvador, they gained their freedom. And something very important is that by 1997, El Salvador was still recovering from the civil war in the 1980s that ended in 1992. For instance, in many places in El Salvador, the police simply did not exist. And as a result, the gangs were able to quickly expand their influence and become powerful organizations that we see today. Do you have a sense of how similar the experience of gang activity in, in El Salvador is to that in other developing countries? Yes, actually, the same events of deportations took place in Guatemala and Honduras, where we today we see the same gangs, the MS-13 and neighborhood team present, controlling also the different neighborhoods. They have complete control on neighborhoods, they are territorial. But more generally, gangs similar to MS-13 and neighborhood team are also present in other developing countries, like in Colombia, Brazil, Jamaica, South Africa. And the activity that they do is also pretty similar. The main sources of revenue are extortion and drug selling. And as I was saying before, most of these gangs are characterized for being highly territorial and maintain their control over their certain areas, often restricting this individual mobility to avoid informants entering into their territory and also to be able to do their activities, which are extortion and drug selling. Okay, so the results of the study are going to be highly relevant <laughs> to all of those other places, it sounds like. Um, okay, so your paper is titled Gangs, Labor Mobility and Development. And as you said, it's co-authored with Nikita Melnikov and Carlos Schmidt-Padilla. Uh, so give us a sense of what the existing literature looked like before you started working on this paper. Before your paper, what had we known about the effects of gangs in El Salvador and elsewhere? Yes, so most of the evidence was uh, descriptive. I highlighted the high cost of gangs in terms of violence. On this, we knew a lot also about the criminal careers, but we knew very little about what happens once gangs have a complete control of territory, once we don't have this violence of gangs contesting by ter for territory. 
And on this, a related paper actually from Chris Blattman, Gustavo Duncan, Ben Lessing, and Santiago Tobón describes actually how gangs are organized in Medellin, Colombia. This is actually fascinating work because they describe under which circumstances gangs may choose to govern, govern and the type of services they offer in these territories they control. Basically, our paper complements this uh, new literature by estimating causally the effect of living under the rule of gangs on development and state capacity, and also how these restrictions to mobility imposed by gangs may affect household outcomes. And since we hadn't had a, a paper before, it sounds like um, that was able to estimate those causal effects, uh, it's obviously hard to do. <laughs> and so, so talk us through the, the main empirical challenges you had to overcome to do the study. Is the hard part finding the data or the natural experiment, or is it both? I would say it's both. So let me tell you a bit about the challenge of estimating the effects of gangs on economic development. And the fact is that in most settings, the emergence of gangs or criminal organization in certain locations is endogenous to historical socioeconomic characteristics, such as, for instance, poverty, pre-existing violence. So in the case of El Salvador and the gangs, the fact that the fact that gangs emerge as a result of this plausible exogenous change in U.S. deportation provides a unique experiment that allows to estimate the causal effects of gangs' presence. And then the second thing is data, that in general, is not, there is not much knowledge about where the gangs are located. And here we exploit that we could have access to police intelligence data on the exact boundaries of these gangs' locations. And yes, your main analysis uses those boundaries of these gang-controlled neighborhoods in San Salvador, the capital of El Salvador, as a natural experiment, comparing people who live just inside the gang territory with those who live just outside, uh, which is a beautiful natural experiment. (laughs) So tell us about how those boundaries came to be and why they are useful for measuring the effects of gangs. Yes. Initially, basically, when the gang leaders were deported to El Salvador in 1997, The country, as I was telling you before, was still recovering from the consequences of the civil war that ended in 1992. For instance, in certain areas, the police literally did not exist. So in certain way, the gangs filled that vacuum. So in the next few years, the gang actively expanded, recruiting new members and expanding the boundaries of their territory. However, at the same time that this happened, of course, the police also expanded its ability to fight gangs and to prevent them from expanding their influence. And ultimately, the boundaries were formed as a result of these two forces. Therefore, the location, the exact location that we see of the boundaries is as good as random. They easily could have been, you know, shifted by 50, 100 meters in either direction. So in turn, for our identification strategy, a special regression discontinuity design, we compare development outcomes in areas just 50 meters away from each other. And in addition, we have data in, of, of census in 1992, which was five years before the deportation of gang leaders from the U.S., and we can see that those locations had similar levels of development. And so tell us a little bit more about what this looks like in practice. So you talk a bunch in the paper about you have like clear entry and exit points and you need permission to enter or you have to pay. So just talk us through like what is the experience of for people who live inside and people who live outside and to what extent people can come and go? So basically, and this is actually the, the fact about this of the restriction of mobility is one of the mechanisms that we have in mind. And this came actually by doing so when we started this project, we thought about many mechanisms, no? that gangs would affect economic development, and we were open-minded about this. So we went to the field, and actually we talked to many people, and the story 
was consistent was the following. Was this about the mobility? So basically, gangs want to maintain their control over individuals living in the areas because if these individuals live, then we have less rent from extortion, which is their main source of income. Also, at the same time, they want to protect themselves from police informants, infiltrators from the rival gangs. Therefore, for these two reasons, the gangs make it difficult for individuals to cross the boundaries of their territory in any direction, whether you want to enter or you want to leave. So, for example, for you to have an idea, individuals need to have a permission from the gang leader. And in addition, if they got that permission, they have to pay a fee equally more or less approximately $1 every time they want to cross the border. Those, it is very difficult for people living in gun control areas to basically choose to work in areas outside the boundaries. It's very, it's high, it's very costly for them to leave this gang territory. And as a result, they have to work in the neighborhood where they live, which often ends up in small firms and low paying jobs. So basically, we argue that these limits on individual economic mobility can potentially play an important role in reducing the economic development in gun control areas. And so that reduction in mobility is definitely one potential mechanism here, as you mentioned. Yes. Uh, what are the other mechanisms we might have in mind for why living in one of these neighborhoods could affect the economic outcomes of the people living there and maybe economic development in these areas more broadly? So basically, to, we, we explored several mechanisms. And actually, to do this, we couldn't. So I, I would tell you that I used this data from the police. Then I also used the census demographic in 1997, which basically have this geocoded census track. But they didn't have that many questions related to the mechanisms. So for this, we basically went to these gun control areas. And we did this geocoded survey to 3,000 households, where we asked several questions related to three mechanisms. The first one is related about violence, no? First, you may think that all these effects in economic development, the negative effects that we find are driven by increasing in violence. But actually, we find that this is not the case. As I was telling you before, these are territories that have been controlled by one particular gang for decades. So we are exploiting territories where one gang has the monopoly and violence is not the main driver. Then the second thing that I wanted to know is how much the effects are driven by lower quantity or quality of public investment. It is possible that now, since the gun control these areas, the government don't go there, they don't invest in schools, in health centers, there is no public investment. And basically what we find in this case is that interestingly, we don't find that effects are driven by a lower quality or quantity of public goods. So this is not the case. We do not find any differential effects in gang areas on the quantity and quality of public goods relative to non-gang areas. And basically here, what we argue that can be happening is that possibly gangs allow some level of infrastructure to be built by the government so they can extract more from their population. So we have this mix of state and gang presence. And the third thing is that there was this common belief that criminal organizations may provide their own public goods no? that the state is not able to provide. And basically, we don't find that much evidence that this is the case. We find that gangs do not seem to be providing, you know, their own public goods. We don't find evidence that individuals resort to the gang leader to solve their domestic disputes, neither public goods problems. So basically, what we do find is that gangs limit the mobility of individuals. And by limiting mobility, gangs restrict their residents' labor choices. And we actually find a lot of evidence that individuals living in these gang control areas are less likely to work far away from the gang neighborhoods. And this can be a potential reason for explaining this lower income of individuals living under gang control. 
So as you're alluding to here, you have a bunch of different outcomes that you're able to look at. And you mentioned this cool survey that you do. So just let's talk more about the data more broadly. What what are the data sets that you have at your disposal? And, and how did you manage to obtain those data? Yes. So the data mainly comes from three sources. So the first one is that we got data from the police on the exact location of the boundaries of one territory in the capital of El Salvador, San Salvador. Basically, this data allows us to perform the spatial relation discontinuity design using the distance to the boundary of gang territory as the forcing variable. Second, to consider the effect of gang presence on economic development, we need data that is almost like geocoid. So for this, we got access to data from the 1992 and 2007 webs of the census. This is perfect because 1992 allow us to test the pre-existing characteristics before the arrival of criminal deportees from the US. And 2007, we can analyze the effects on a diverse range of outcomes at the household level. And as I was telling you, this data is available at the census tract level, which is partially geocoded. Each census tract consists of approximately 300 households. And finally, the third uh, data set that we use is that to try to understand the mechanisms on economic development, we actually went to these gun control areas and we conducted this geocoded survey to these 3,000 households where we asked individuals questions about mobility, where do they work, occupation, also the public goods uh, provision and quality in their neighborhoods, also to which extent they resort to gang leaders to solve their conflict and other potential mechanisms. So the fact that you guys did a survey was just amazing. And so you didn't do the survey yourself. You had a survey firm, right? Um, yes, yes. So how did you, so, I mean, was it difficult to find a firm that was able to go into these areas? What were, I mean, it sounds like there were restrictions on what they could ask. Tell us more about kind of yes. the logistics of all of that. Yes, definitely. Yes. Uh, actually, so this firm is known to do, you know, they work doing the census. So it was useful for us. But the thing is, the most complicated thing when you enter to these locations is whether if you start asking questions related to gang businesses. But since we were doing a lot of questions related to socioeconomic conditions, labor outcomes, in those cases, we don't have a problem. But in general, what the strategy that we did was basically to try to go in areas where we wouldn't bother, you know, the gang leader or they would check our questionnaire. So to try to avoid that. But in terms of the questionnaire, most of the questions households were willing to answer. The only one that was a bit more complicated was when we asked them about whether gangs restrict when we asked directly, basically, if gangs restrict their mobility in the neighborhood, and that was the mo most problematic question, but all the rest were okay. So that was the only condition when we were contacting these uh, firm surveys companies, whether like which things we could ask, and they said you can ask anything as long as it's not related to the main business of the gangs, which is the drug selling and extortion. Interesting. Okay, so what are your main findings on the effects of living in gang controlled neighborhoods on economic outcomes? So the results from the spatial are the erosion discontinuity. Basically, we find that individuals living under these neighborhoods that are under the control of gangs have become significantly poorer than individuals living only 50 meters away in locations that are not controlled by gangs. I think that this is super disaggregated. It's just 50 meters away. And these are very large effects. We see that individuals living under the rule of gangs have more or less 50% lower income than individuals that are just outside the boundaries. Moreover, they have much less years of education and worse household conditions, lower probability of having durables, and also quality of their dwelling is much worse. 
And what it is more, we actually validate these results uh, that we got from survey data and reported data using a difference in different strategy where we see that also in these locations where we have a uh, gang presence, there is lower growth in luminosity. And while you might think that these areas were worse areas to be in with, we find that this is not the case, given that none of these differences or discontinuities existed in 1992 before the arrival of gangs from the U.S. And we already talked a little bit about mechanisms. So you do test a bit to see to what extent all this is driven by, say, differential access to public schools or different economic incentives to work. So if you have, you know, the gangs are now taxing your income heavily, maybe you just don't invest in your human capital and don't bother Mm -hmm. finding a better paying job and all of that. So yeah, so talk more about what you do there to test the potential mechanisms and what you find. So basically, like to rule out uh, the effects on violence, what we do is like we got this homicide data and in general, what they said, for instance, for the first mechanisms, that is this one of the increasing violence, what we do is basically restricting our analysis, taking out places that can be contested. So those census tracts that are close to the boundaries and we find that the effects mostly hold and they don't change at all, in, even in magnitude. Then to see all these of the effects of quality and quantity of public goods, we basically ask individuals that are living in these areas how they qualify these public goods, the schools, quality, the health centers, the roads. And most of these, there are no differences between individuals that live in these locations versus individuals that do not live in there. Also, we use uh, admin data that has like the geocoded location of schools and hospitals, and we don't find any difference uh, right across the boundaries. Then to analyze this of the gang mobility, basically we, how gangs sorry, affect gangs mobility, individuals mobility, we ask questions related of where individuals work and not only about their uh, jobs location, but also whether, for instance, they go to the beach. And the beach actually is like 30 minutes from the place where they are. Like Salvador is very small, so you can go to the beach in 30 minutes. And we also find effects that individuals not only are less likely to work far away, but also they are less likely to move even now to go, you know, to the beach or next to the to the department that is next to San Salvador. So there are very a lot of pieces of evidence that show that individuals are highly affected by these uh, limitations in mobility. And moreover, when we ask this question about how much they think that uh, freedom of movement is a problem in their neighborhood, we find a significant larger share of individuals that live under gun control uh, neighborhoods saying that this is the case. Okay. And then, as you mentioned, you you also do this analysis with luminosity. So you have these really cool data from satellites on the light levels across the whole country. Um, and so you use a difference in difference design to measure how economic development changes in places with increased gang presence after the U.S. started deporting gang members. So this was really neat. <laughs> so tell us more about this part of the paper. What do these luminosity data tell us exactly? Uh, and how do you use this measure to test for a causal effect of gangs? Yes. So basically, we use this nighttime light density, which is our main outcomes for the difference in difference analysis, which is increasingly used as a proxy for economic activity at the level for which economic standard statistics, just as, such as GDP per capita, industrial production, are not available in El Salvador. And importantly, this variable is available for all the years. So for every year from 1992 to 2013, we have this data at the grid level. So this allows us to see the timing 
when the areas exposed to gang presence start experiencing lower rates of economic growth, which we couldn't see with the regression discontinuity in design because it was a cross-section just before and after. So the later, this basically what we do is compare the uh, luminosity growth in areas that were exposed to gang activity, and this is proxy by the presence of homicides that the police, the police classify as committed by gangs, and areas that were not. And the later basically is a valid counterfactual for the former if prior to the emergence of gangs in 1997, the two groups experienced similar growth in luminosity, basically the parallel trends assumption. We test this and we see that this is confirmed. In addition, to further address the concern that maybe there is some endogeneity of the locations without gang presence, we basically use the birth location of the known gang leaders as an instrument from whether this location was exposed to these US gangs or not. So you now have these kind of two sets of analyses that show that it's not it's not some sort of pre-existing condition that like the gangs exactly. picked the places that were already uh, worse off in some way that like it really did seem like these places were you know just on the other either side of the boundary and then just more broadly uh, using your diff and diff like they were all developing exactly the same way before and then suddenly the U.S. changes its policy and starts deporting these gang members to the country. And things suddenly get worse in these places that the gangs take over. Yeah. And so having having both the spatial discontinuity design plus the stiff and diff with light, which I just found very compelling side by side. So let's talk about policy implications then. So I'm sure people are listening and thinking, well, this is evidence that the U.S. was right to deport these gang members. Clearly, they were dangerous, right? Um, but as I was reading it, I was thinking, well, you know, the amount of trouble they might cause in El Salvador might be different from the amount of trouble they can cause in the U.S. So it might be, uh, you know, if we're thinking about kind of the broader social welfare, it might have been better to keep them in the U.S. How do you think about the potential trade-offs here? You've thought about this for a lot longer than I have. <laughs> um, so what, in your mind, what do your results say about optimal immigration policy? So yes, basically the statement that the U.S. was right to deport these gang members actually should be viewed with caution. While the deportation of gang members may have initially slightly reduced the level of crime in the U.S., it may have done more bad than good, not only for El Salvador, but also for the U.S. Importantly, when the gang members were deported to El Salvador, the local government did not have the capacity to prevent the gangs from expanding and becoming this powerful criminal organization that we observe today. In 1997, El Salvador was still recovering from the civil war. In 1992, there was no large police form. For instance, the rural police unit was only created in the very early 2000s. So it was easy for the guns to recruit poor individuals in El Salvador who live in poverty and did not have good job prospects. All these features, also characteristics of many development countries, basically empower gangs and allow them to grow, something that would not have happened in the US. In turn, now that the gangs are powerful, thousands of individuals you see that are fleeing from El Salvador to the United States, creating a humanitarian crisis and significantly increasing the cost of law enforcement. Moreover, another externality to the US that I haven't mentioned is the fact that many of these gangs are also used by the Mexican cartel for drug trafficking to the US. Therefore, I think it is quite likely that it would have been much cheaper for the US not to deport the gang members, but to allocate more funds to social prevention programs and law enforcement to prevent organized crime from taking place in the U.S. in the first place. Hmm. And uh, is your sense that just as you said, the police capacity in El Salvador has increased over time, if the same change in, in U.S. policy had happened 
like 10 years later in your mind? Do you think that the effects would have been similar or would it have been a very different story? Like if in the U.S. they would have like the similar conditions and not if having a strong happened, Yeah, if this happened in 2007 instead of 1997, would El Salvador have been in, in a better position to sort of prevent the gangs from taking hold or... I think that yes, because they would have had a better sense, you know, they would have better records. By the time when these deportees were arriving, they were not even having the correct records. And something important is that they were gaining their freedom once they were back in El Salvador. Something that today, like for instance, if you deport criminal members to the U.S., there is a, a, to these countries, they have a better system. They cannot go to jail, but they have a system of tracking these individuals, where they go. There is a stronger police force. Still, it's not a, the great, the best because it's a developing country, but it's much better than in 1997. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, I mean, taking U.S. immigration policy out of this, I guess, what are the policy implications for El Salvador and for other developing countries that are currently dealing with gangs like this? What do these new results uh, from this paper mean for them? So as I was telling you before, this MS-13 and Neighborhood 18 and also similar criminal organizations are active in many developing countries. So I think that this paper highlights a huge cost of gang activity to economic development and the potential benefits from fighting organized crime. Moreover, often violence is considered the main, if not only a social cause of criminal organization, sometimes suggesting that less gang competition can be welfare improving. And basically in this paper, we highlight a potential huge cause of territorial control by criminal organizations, moderating kind of those claims. And the other contribution of the paper is that it documents a new mechanisms, restricting economic growth in the presence of organized crime by restrictions of individual mobility. And this mechanism highlights the importance of freedom of moving for development policy. In terms, restrictions on individual mobility exist in multiple settings, not only in the presence of gangs. And I know, I know you have some other work on gangs, uh, gang activity. Um, and so I do want to talk kind of about the research frontier, but also want to give you a chance to talk about that other work. So kind of what else do we know? And what are the big questions that you and others interested in this topic will be thinking about going forward? So what we are trying to work a lot is mainly about more, uh, more because there is little work detailing the causes and consequences of organized crime, especially in developing countries. For instance, another work that we are doing also with Carlos Schmidt Padilla and Felipe Gonzalez and Paolo Matos is basically trying to understand how incarceration policies may have affected the expansion of gangs into new neighborhoods, also in Central America. Also, for instance, Santiago Tobón, Chris Blackman, Ben Lessing and Gustavo Duncan are doing great work in meshing the organization and hierarchy of gangs, as well as this interplane of gangs and the state in Medellin. Also, Ben Lessing is doing work in Brazil, studying how gangs and cartels coordinate their activities from jail. And also in this line, I think that more work is needed to understand what policies can mitigate the negative effects of gangs, cartels, and other non-state actors. And in this line, there is a very interesting paper that is new from Beatriz Magaloni and Coasters, which basically in Brazil, they study, they show how community policing may have differential effects based on whether criminal groups cooperate with the community. That is whether the criminal organization provides some sort of social order, order in these communities by sanctioning small local criminals. And what they find that under these circumstances, in these locations where there is some cooperation with the community of these gangs and cartels, if you do a policy of a state crackdown, this may undermine the criminal governments that is often critical to keep violent criminals at bay and might increase criminal activity 
throughout the community. And in this way, I think that research on such policies and the relationship between gangs, the community they control, and the state may be an excellent venue for future research, which we are also trying to explore. Yeah, unintended consequences feel like a real, <laughs> real potential problem yes. here. Um, and I agree that the, you know, it's, it's, uh, always helpful to document the causal effects as, as you've done in this paper. And then the next question is always, well, what do we do about it? Um, and you're, so you mentioned, you know, work that's ongoing in a bunch of different countries across Latin America. So first of all, it's just been really interesting to see this explosion of new work outside of the United States and outside of Europe on crime. So it's a relatively new development. And so it's been fun to see all the new papers in this area. Do you have a sense of kind of how much policy experimentation there currently is across different governments in terms of, you know, f- f- trying new ways of dealing with the challenge of gangs? Yes, I think, for instance, in the case of El Salvador, certain units, for instance, the Ministry of Security, which was the one that shared data with us, they are willing, you know, not that much maybe to do a randomized controlled experiment, but also, you know, to share data and work together about which are the, for instance, which is the optimal allocation of when you incarcerate individuals, in which jails to put it, should you separate the jails based on gangs, membership or not. Those are things that they are willing to do. In the case, for instance, of Peru and Colombia, I think that um, government is also willing to do, you know, work joined with uh, researchers as us. And I know, for instance, that the same group that is working in Medellin of Santiago Tobón, Chris Bladman, Ben Lesley and Gustavo Duncan, they are doing some interventions of randomized control trials joined with Bogota, Medellin, Colombia, to try to understand which are the best policies, you know, to mitigate uh, the negative consequences that these gangs may have in their communities. That's so interesting. So it's, it's, it's in this, uh, I think that Latin America in this way, since it is it's a developing country, but it's urbanized and it's, it's more developed than other places, probably in, in Africa or in, in other locations. This gives you also opportunity to also be working, you know, with government. Mm-hmm. And it does seem like the data has gotten better from Latin America over time yes. too. Is that your sense also? Yes, yes, yes. That's great. That's very important. <laughs> Being able to get access to administrative yes. crime data. Uh, well, fantastic. My guest today has been Mika Siachi from Princeton University. Mika, thanks so much for doing this. No, thank you so much for inviting me. You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures for supporting the show. And thanks also to our Patreon subscribers. This show is listener supported. So if you enjoy the podcast, then please consider contributing via Patreon. You can find a link on our website. Our sound engineer is Carolyn Hockenberry with production assistance from Elizabeth Pancotti. Our music is by Werner and our logo is designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you in two weeks. 